Welcome to the first of two podcasts in a series we're calling Neurodiversity Works, celebrating neurodiversity as part of World Autism Awareness Week. I'm Joanna Aunion and I'm a director at WIHTL and Diversity in Retail. We're dedicated to increasing women's and ethnic minorities' representation at all levels and in leadership positions across hospitality, travel, leisure and retail. At the same time, we work with organisations to improve inclusion and create cultures where anyone can reach their potential. I'm also the mum to a six-year-old autistic boy. In this episode, I'm speaking with neurodiversity advocate Theo Smith, himself neurodiverse and co-author with Professor Amanda Kirby of the forthcoming book, Neurodiversity at Work. I've heard him speak many times, so I was really looking forward to this discussion. His passion for the subject is a real inspiration, and I'm sure you'll enjoy listening to his many insights. Welcome, Theo. Lovely to have you here. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So, Theo, would you mind um, introducing yourself and why you have such a passion for neurodiversity at work? Yeah, of course. No problem at all. Um, So, I'm Theo Smith. I've had a good amount of my career within uh, recruitment. Um, So I've helped organisations, but third party organisations as well uh, in the sphere of recruitment, helping them attract people into their businesses. Uh, And uh, more recently, I've had this passion and interest in neurodiversity. Um, Now, little did I know when I came across uh, the term neurodiversity Mm -hmm. about three years ago, did I know that actually it was about me? (laughs) (laughs) A little bit of a surprise. I was like, not another thing around diversity and not a negative around it. Just, you know, recruitment can be really difficult. It can be really difficult to get it right. Um, it's very much around dealing with human beings. And therefore, sometimes you're just trying to get the basics right. So kind of overlaying it with more things to consider isn't always easy. Um, but when I did find out uh, that neurodiversity related to me, because at 20 when I found out I was dyslexic, um, as a mature student at university, no prior qualifications. Um, and then it wasn't until I was 38 that I realized I was ADHD. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, alongside that, I was going on a journey with one of my children as well um, in junior school. Uh, so uh, like all of that together really kind of was an explosion uh, of things going through my mind three years ago. It wasn't a complete surprise because um, part I have family members who mm-hmm. have been diagnosed with ADHD, some need 24-7 care because they have other impacting factors that affect their lives. Um, others don't. Some um, are also dyslexic or autistic. So my family is complex and, and has varying different needs and, and capabilities. Abilities. So it wasn't a, a big shock, but it was still like, oh, right. That's the thing that kind of is been impacting me. I just thought, it was this or that or dyslexia or what I just mm-hmm. didn't know you know maybe I was just uh, just really forgetful and, and that's just not uh, that's just normal right well it is normal but but there were reasons for it and things that I could learn so at that point three years ago I was thinking right what can I do I worked for the National Institute for Health and Care and Excellence they provide the evidence-based research for if you turn up at your um, doctor's <laughs> surgery yeah. um, and you say hey I think I'm uh, I think I'm neurodiverse uh, then they're the ones who are going to guide you in terms of the support you can get but often you'll find that there is limited support that will be offered at that point other than a brick wall um, so that helped me because I was able to look at the um, kind of the medical paradigm 
Mm. versus the reality of the situation so how I felt as a parent how I felt as a human being and what I was hearing from other people which fascinated me there seemed a real lack of information and guidance I mean not just for parents right because waiting lists are like four years for ADHD diagnosis in certain areas yeah. in the UK. maybe five years I know autism the same it can vary from like three months to five years which is insane but that's that's kind of for, for the parents but you've got for the employees as well you've got 50 year old people who were sat in work realizing for the first time that there is something different about them and that they're able to explore what that might be and then getting the diagnosis uh, for them can be huge and then do the organization support them or not and where can they find out information so all of that together led me to explore what can I find out about this important subject and uh, it came to writing a book and why would some of you have no GCSEs, no A-levels, no formal qualifications before kind of a mature student that going to university um, to do an acting degree? So not that difficult a degree in all, <laughs> in all nature of things. Um, but why would I write a book? Um, well, because there wasn't one there. And I guess that's what happens, right? You look for help. You can't see the help there. So you find a way to create the help for others. Um, and my brain is not an ac academic brain from that perspective. So I knew Amanda, um, I've done some uh, webinars and things with her. I, I chatted with her and I absolutely respected and admired the work that she does. Mm -hmm. But the important thing is I thought we have opportunity here to influence, if not policy, if not government, if not education, I know from my experience um, working in recruitment and working with a lot of recruitment leaders that actually we can make changes that happen now. Yeah. Like I can go in and implement a change within the organization. Tomorrow, that change is potentially positively affecting those people going through that process. That is huge. Now, I know I can't do it. I've worked in public sector. I know how long and painful some of these things take. So to be able to... Uh, to be able to grab a hold of that and create a book that can help organizations make immediate change that's powerful stuff it is hugely powerful and i have a background in in recruitment as well i spent a lot of my career so I, that absolutely resonates with me and we could talk about this for hours here but how would you describe neurodiversity so that for the people who, you know, who really don't have you know maybe the first time they've heard that expression how would you describe it for them so neurodiversity is a big word and big words frustrate me straight away. And that's what would scare me away from something like this. But just to put it as simply as possible, because that's how I like it to be put to me, um, is that it's the fact that we all think differently. Our brains work differently and our brains have been designed like the animals that exist in this world. They've been designed um, to be able to work within their environment. Right. So. Um, you know, a, a particular fish is designed in, in a way that they may be transparent to hide them from their predators. Um, and their predator may design eyes that can see the reflection off the skin of that transparent fish so that they can catch them. Right? So Mother Nature is always designing these things. And sometimes they can be quirky and sometimes they can feel unfair. But actually, it's a part of, of normal human evolution, human radiation. Uh, and therefore, and um, if we think about our brain being made in a particular way and the fact that, you know, my brain means that I'm defined by the, the medical paradigm, ADHD, dyslexic, probably uh, dyscalculia as well. And who knows what else? Elements of autism. Um, 
uh, that is normal, right? But the problem why it's not normal now, and the problem why we call it neurodivergent, I don't like it, that's right. one name, or neurodifferent or neurodiverse, whatever you like to call it, what it means is our brains are perhaps, perhaps slightly more unusual to lots of other people in the current environment that we live in. So that means the education system is designed in a way that doesn't quite fit with my brain and my learning style. The work environment might be constructed in a way that doesn't quite fit with my brain and my learning style. So we've created this rat race that works um, for the majority of people. However, there are some dolphins, right? And we're, being at, we're asking those dolphins to run this rat race and they can't even get out of the water. And that's the challenge. These dolphins are very intelligent. They can do incredible things. But if we insist upon them coming out of the water to run the rat race, they're always going to fail and we're always going to put them at a disadvantage. The world is changing. Digital evolution is going to have a huge impact. Um, opportunities for different ways of working, working from home. Um, you know, all of these things are going to have positive impact. But at the moment, we are still in, in the position where neurodiversity, right, is everybody, everybody's brains. But there are a certain group of people or certain groups of people who are facing challenges because of the nature of the way their brain is made up. And it, it really is as simple as that. So we all, we're all a part of this because anyone can be uh, affected by the infrastructure of this world, of the environment. Uh, that we work in where we live none of us can say we can get out of this my wife is not neurodiverse but she is affected by light and sound she gets um, migraines and she has visual aura some of those things are actually quite similar to how some people are affected um, who are thick um, or on the spectrum so again um, some of the things that may affect me they do affect others it's not just me it's not just yeah. because I'm ADHD um, it's, but sometimes it's to the extent, to the level that it may affect, that it may be disabling, and that's where the kind of the disability element comes in, where I'm not able to carry out a task because of the impact of what's going on in my brain. And, and thank you, Theo. I think that's a great um, description. And, you know, moving through to the themes that you brought out in, in your book about how how to help employers really understand what they can do and adapt to, to really harness a talent pool that I think they haven't harnessed before. Coming back with our recruitment heads on, you know, it used to drive me crazy as a recruiter. It's like, oh, they're not a cultural fit. Used to drive me absolutely crazy because, you know, what, what does that mean? What does that even, you know, so someone doesn't, you know, doesn't feel comfortable to do this or do that. That doesn't mean they're not brilliant at the job and what are you really thinking about? So in your book, how do you cover those things? How do you help such a complex subject? You know, how, how do you bring it into a tangible place for employers and what they can do? Yeah, thank you. Um, so it, it's a big subject and it's difficult to capture it all in a book, but it's about 110,000 words. So we've gone oh. beyond what we thought we would. Um, and Amanda and I tried to do it. Uh, we tried to play to our strengths in this instance. Amanda, from kind of an academic point of view, um, you know, the research, the evidence base, um, but also pulling in from our friends to, to show real world scenarios of, of what people are doing. And you're right, it is absolutely human. Um, it's about the human element. So when we think around um, Sean and Lena from the BBC and we tell their story, it is literally one person, a manager, Sean, listening to Lena say, hey, Sean, this is who I am. This is how my brain works. This is where I may have some challenges. Like, 
can you help me in the sense that can you just listen and understand and uh, and will you be um uh, you know where possible empathetic to to my situation um or sympathetic uh, and give me the support i require to be brilliant because she is brilliant and they are brilliant together um as a team and uh, so that human element that's not about the bbc although the bbc do great work as well and you know um, uh, and the Cardiff design, uh, which we have in the book as well, it's just incredible that they designed it with neurodiversity front and centre. But it was about one person listening to another, right? Mm. Simple. So if any organisation is sitting there or any manager thinking, what can I do? First of all, you can seek first to understand that individual, not kind of imprint what you think on them or not think, oh, this person's difficult. Because I think that's what happens. Stressed out manager has somebody go, I, you know, I don't like attending all these meetings or I struggle with the light or the sound or I get stressed out. I need to go away from the room for a bit. I, like the manager's like, oh no, like how do I explain this to everyone else? Rather than, rather than just listening to the individual. And I think that's what we need to get to. We need to get to a point where organizations get out of kind of the legal um, paradigm of, of neurodiversity, of diversity and inclusion and belonging and, and get into the human element, the human nature of this, um, which is really, really important because I think part of the reason why a lot of organisations are focusing on it is because of the legal aspect. They get in managers come to HR, HR might panic, sorry I'm not having to go everybody in HR, but mm. they might panic, not know what to do with it, and they're seeking legal advice around what should happen if this person should challenge them. You're starting from the wrong place, yeah. right? You're already thinking, what are we going to do when it hits the fan, <laughs> if you know what I mean? Oh, Rather yeah. than, we don't even need to get anywhere near there. We need to listen to this human being, right, and find out why they're in this negative space, potentially, or, or why they could end up in a negative space and, and what we can put in place to help them. Uh, and a lot of the book, a lot of the book, we talk about these things, we draw out these real situations and we try and break it down into tangible hints and tips that people can understand. And then they can go, oh, OK, this is how that person may be feeling. OK, my approach that I would normally take doesn't have to be um, to go to HR specifically. There are other things that I can do with this individual before kind of running through some kind of informal or formal process that in the end doesn't really help anybody. And, and, and just touching on that, Thea, I've, I've followed you for a long time and heard you speak quite a few times and, and particularly uh, recently as, as you and Amanda have been talking about the book. And what really interested me was your uh, about the attraction recruitment process as well, you know, because obviously we're talking about retention. And what I really found interesting was your point around, you know, park the traditional mind frame structure systemic things that that cause barriers for great talent to come in not just from people from a neurodiverse perspective but i think anybody that has traditionally found barriers to coming to work and thriving so would you like to just talk me through a little bit more about those ideas because i thought they were brilliant yeah definitely and we, we make a lot of um we refer to these a lot in the book as well and, and again in a really human way uh, just mm. by uh, leaning on experience um so I mean, some of the very basic elements to this, you start at the earliest stage in the process, right? So first of all, um, one thing that frustrates me is we create um, job descriptions, right? We create these job descriptions, then manager A creates it, okay? Because they need to, it's a new role or whatever it may be. 
they may create off some template or some other job and they're pulling aspects of it. That manager goes, manager B comes in and they make some changes. Manager C comes in and adds some more. Before you know it, that job description is like 15 pages long. It makes sense to nobody. Several people have added to it. It's a job that doesn't exist anywhere else in the world because it's very specific to that organization. Now, who do you expect you're going to get to do this job? Now, you've got a couple of things that may happen. Either only an internal applicant can ever get it. Now, maybe that is the right thing, or maybe it's just you've not described the job properly, right? And, and that's, it. I, I, I absolutely celebrate in, in internal applicants getting jobs, right? But it needs to be for the right reasons. We can't create big walls around organizations where nobody can ever get in. That's not good as well. Um, so what you've got to do, think about that at the very earliest stage, what can you do to simplify the job description? Why does that job description have to be the life of that job? You know, it's eternity, like the next 60 years. Now, I know there are some complexities around HR um, trying to, you know, ensure that all job descriptions are equal across the organization, right? Oh. But what we've got to think about here is um, we're, we're stopping people understand what that job is, right? First of all, right? Even the manager often doesn't. I've, I've managers sit there and go, I, even, I don't know what this is, right? But, like, <laughs> that and is true. <laughs> whatever. I'm not touching this because it might mess the whole system up, right? So we're, we're putting all these barriers in place. And then we expect an applicant to be able to understand it. We then extract the information from that job description and we put in advert. So something that doesn't make sense, we then shorten it so it makes even less sense. Brilliant, I mean, it's ingenious. And then we put that out and we wonder why we get these people walk through the door who on paper are brilliant, right? They've got the degrees we want, they look fantastic. They walk in the room, they bomb. We sit there and we look at each other and go, what happened there? What do you mean what happened there? You had a ridiculous job description. You had an advert pull from that that made no sense. You then didn't really probably give them enough guidance and support coming into that interview process. They either come in and don't say anything or they just garble out their experiences. You may get lucky and get a match, right? Which may happen. Or you'll get a match that doesn't work. You think it works, but it's not right for a variety of different reasons. Um, I mean, you literally are flipping a coin. Let's just flip a coin. Um, and then you wonder why these other people may not have applied. They didn't apply because they did not understand what you were asking of them. Mm -hmm. So you need to go back to the job description. You need to break that down. Maybe look at it like the next six months, what they're going to do. Maybe the next 12 months. There's some good examples out there of organizations that do this. Because the world is moving so quickly, right? The job won't look the same in 12 months anyway. In reality, so why not focus on the tasks that are going to be required for the next six to 12 months? Because that makes sense. And people, it's tangible. People go, okay, right. So I'm going to have to spend 30% of my time dealing with these stakeholders. I'm going to have to spend 20% of my time doing this. These are the types of tasks I'm going to do. Uh, and then you can put in the skills there and then they can understand it. Now, why is this important? For people who are neurodiverse, right? For people who might get really anxious about this process, for a wide variety of different reasons, they need to understand what's in front of them. Otherwise, potentially they won't apply or they will apply and they won't be able to prepare themselves well enough to go into the interview. So we move from that stage, getting the communication right to into the interview. Let's say by chance somebody who's ADHD or autistic, for example, managers get past that point and they get into the interview. Me, ADHD, I don't really know what they're looking for. They ask some questions. I go off on about three tangents, right? Mm -hmm. They think, what is this person? I mean, he's just gone off on one. 
I've not answered their questions. They're not able to score me appropriately, depending on the structure of that interview process. I may go and do a test and do quite well, but it's irrelevant because I've my low scores on the interview means no matter how well I did on the test, it doesn't matter, right? And there may be other ways of assessing in there as well, but still, I failed significantly on this on this listening and and, and responding to these questions because I didn't know which direction I was supposed to go into. The other end of that is somebody perhaps who might need very specific instructions. So a little bit different to me, I go off on a tangent, they won't go off on any tangent, actually they will barely say anything because your question's confusing and they don't understand it. Uh, and therefore when you ask it, they will just go, or they may give you a very short answer. So you're missing out on these people and that's even if they got through because your copy was rubbish. So they probably didn't. Um, and then, and then even if then you manage to employ them, right? You then put them in an environment where you've not considered their needs and how you're going to support them. And effectively, the way I describe it is it's like putting Superman into a room full of kryptonite and then wondering why he goes crazy or that he's, he can't move, he can't do anything. Because you've not considered the individual. You know, there's, there's support available out there. There's government schemes that can help you, especially if you do this in the first few months of employing somebody. Um, that will barely cost an organization anything, if anything at all. And you can put those workplace adjustments in, technology or whatever else it may be, low cost. Um, but, but we don't, you see, we're not. And that's what organizations need to do now, back to the human approach. It can be around the copy and it can be around people just asking simple questions. When you invite them to interview, right? Not, do you need a reasonable adjustment? Not, do you have a disability? I'm clicking those, you've got no chance of my clicking those. I feel too vulnerable to click those at that point. Theo, is there anything we can do to give you a better experience through this into an assessment process? Done. Hey, actually, yeah, I'll tell you what, you've got a test there and a chance I can have a little bit more time. I, I read a bit slower. Not I'm dyslexic, I don't wanna say that, but I, I, it takes me a bit more time to uh, take all of that information in and, and to assess it and think around it. Bit more time could be really helpful to me. Yes, of course you can have a bit more time. Make to us. But the problem is again, what happens is um, that they uh, organizations often go, okay, um, we can't give more time because we'd have to give everyone more time. Give everyone more time then. If people give it as an option, if people are quiet, give it to them. You know, this is not a, a this is not a university or a school where they're assessing for qualifications. And by the way, I think they should be adjusted, but but this is around just giving a human the opportunity to show their best selves. Why would you not want to see somebody's best self? I find it insane. And, and just on that point, I, and I know focusing particularly on, on, um, on autistic talent, but the level of employment of autistic adults is, is one of the lowest in, in all categories, isn't it? And, and I do think, what, what can employers do? What can companies do to, because there is such great, talent out there I don't know if you saw Theo there was a, a young guy who put on LinkedIn that he hand wrote a note saying well I'm, I'm autistic you won't regret hiring me I mean the fact he had to do that just you know made me so sad just being very human just made me so sad and I think you know what is it that companies can do to to is it apprenticeships is it you know proper internships is it you know what do you think employers can do to to, to target talent that perhaps feel they're just they're just going to fall down even before they apply for all the points that you've just said 
I think they need to try and communicate through the process that they welcome the opportunity to invite people into the interview process and they're willing to consider um, adjustments to help them through that process and then into yeah. the workplace. Because, you know, the, the person that you mentioned there that may go to all that effort to write, how many times can they be knocked back before they actually, they physically, psychologically cannot do it anymore? And um, I think I mentioned in a book, um, somebody that I know works for a tech company, um, they uh, requested that they could bring their mum to the interview. Uh, this was a telephone interview, right? And um, they, uh, this person who I was at an event with said, Theo, like, what, what do you reckon? What should I do about it? For the right reasons he was asking. He didn't want to assume, he didn't, and he was nervous himself as a talent acquisition leader around having somebody's mum on the phone, what, what, you know, how they, he should manage that. Mm -hmm. I said, listen, right, again, think about where that person's coming from. This may be the first interview they've had, or it may be an interview, the first opportunity um, where they felt comfortable to ask this question. Um, they may be knocked back a lot. Um, actually, they may struggle with interpreting questions because they get asked so badly on the telephone. You know, obviously there's no face-to-face -face contact either. So there's all those other challenges that may come with it. This, look at this person, their mum, as like their interpreter, right? They're able to understand where their anxiety levels are at, um, whether or not they're understanding or not understanding. And ultimately, all you want to do as an employer, right, is understand has that person got the skills to do the job, especially at that telephone interview. Has they, have they got the skills to do the job? Yes, we should see them. Right? We should be making decisions about them at that point. They got the skills, let's see them, right? And, and, he, and he said, yeah, brilliant. Okay, yeah, now I, now I know what to do. I'll, I'll just go and interview them. I'll say yes and interview them like any other person and just understand that that person is there almost like an interpreter, and that's fine. Uh, and it's this natural uh, kind of worries and concerns from employers. They're like, is he gonna need his mum to come and join him on day? Well, well, of course not because that's then not an unreal situation, which an interview's not. That's coming into work or at home, depending on how it works, and sitting at the computer and doing the thing they feel comfortable with in their protected environment, right? So, I, I mean, there's just a lot of uh, anxiety that comes from organizations as well. And, and I think, you know, the, what organizations need to do with this is one, open up, and, and, and it's simple, open up and say, how can we help you? How can we give you a better experience? And think, is it reasonable? Almost, it always is reasonable, always. Asking for a bit of time for an exam, that is reasonable. Asking for the questions for the interview, before the interview. I've had debates with people like this. Of course it's reasonable. Yeah. What do you want about, unless you're, unless there's maths questions that they can look on Google and answer, which is 99% of times it's not. Yeah. Right? What you're saying is 15 minutes before um, they come into the interview, they can see the questions. Why? Because if you're ADHD like me, it will stop me going off on a rant. Because now I know I've got a minute to think, oh, right, that's what you're right. I'm going to focus my answers. If you're autistic, it can relieve anxiety. Um, and, and, or on the spectrum, it doesn't have to be autism, whatever. It can just, and again, why say that only people who have an autism diagnosis can have 15 minutes before ADHD. If somebody suffers from anxiety, they may have challenges around their mental health and well-being. Let them have the questions. 
my view is let everybody have the questions 20 minutes before. If they don't need it, they won't look at them and they'll just come in and they'll do their thing, right? But this is how we should be reimagining the recruitment process and onboarding process and the working environment as a whole. It's not about spending big money. It's about looking at individual needs and on a human-based human approach, what can we do? What can we do to make that seat more comfortable for them to sit on, right? What can we do to make sure they've not got a dry mouth? You give them water, you know, this stuff is not that complicated, but yeah. I think the fear factor like, is literally so overwhelming. The fear of legal, the fear of what other people will think, the fear of breaking some unknown law about giving people questions like 10 minutes before. We need to throw this stuff out. Just like COVID made, made us yeah. throw everything out the window, right? The world is, we just gotta, we gotta go home and work and, and we're not sure we're gonna do it, we're gonna do it. Yeah. This, we need to take this as kind of the guidance for the future and how we're kind of all embracing, all encompassing of every different type of, of mind. And, and just on that point, just to, to finish up, Theo, what is, what is our opportunity now? The pandemic has made us work in, I think it's democratised opportunity, um, conversely. What, what is the opportunity now for employers to really, you know, as you say, run with this and make a real difference? So like all the things that employers worry about, can people work at home? Can they be productive? Have we got the technology? Will it work? Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> like, it's it just like, we, it, it is working. It may not be brilliant sometimes, technology may fall, infrastructure uh, needs improving. My internet is up and down. I never know whether it's good or bad. 70 meg, zero in a second. Like we get through that, right? You get that at work. Sometimes systems break down. The reality is tick, tick, tick. It all works. What we need to think about now is, okay, remote working generally works. You know, Nationwide just said 13,000 staff can work from whatever they want. Nationwide. Like we're not talking about little tech companies. Nationwide, 13,000 people. This is what we're talking about. This is the opportunity, right? If you're not thinking in that context around, we can do anything we want to do now, uh, we need to think around what works, um, what's going to work for our workforce and what options we can give them, the individuals, that they may want to come to a working environment so that we may have shared office space or whatever it may be, or they may want to be at home, but both are equally fine. Um, and I think that's what we need to explore. You know, it's simple things like, um, you know, we couldn't have people working remote because we wouldn't know their identity, right? There's like, the technology now to do facial recognition with ID means it's even better than a human being. Mm -hmm. The old days of walking into an office and showing them your passport and them going, is that them? <laughs> Why is it 10 years ago? I'm not even sure if it is them. We've got technology that can like do a better job than humans. So there is, there is very limited reason why people who are neurodiverse can't come into the workplace, right? There's very little reason why people sat in a wheelchair as an example that couldn't access the city center can't access the work from their home this isn't just about democratizing work for um you know people who are neurodiverse for a few this is like incredible this is everybody like the, the changes the opportunities for somebody who may never have been able to leave their bedroom may need a 24 7 care may now have, have an opportunity to do work because they've got an incredible mind so what that they're stuck in four walls? Uh, well, from a business context, so what? 
Um, you, you know, if they can do great work, we need to find a way to allow them to do great work. It's the right thing, right? Which is, for me, it's up there. But uh, it's not just the right thing, it makes business sense as well. So for those who, who don't want to morally do the right thing, then, you know, you, you've got an opportunity for different minds uh, achieving incredible things. And, and Theo, sadly, we've come to the end of our time. I could talk with you for hours. I, you know, I find your, you and Amanda are so inspirational and I can't wait to read the book. It's released in August, is that right? It is, yes. It yes. should be released so much sooner, but August now. We're looking forward to it. Yeah, I cannot wait. So thank you. And it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. Lovely. Very much appreciate it. It's been a joy. I'm sure you'll agree that Theo's enthusiasm is infectious and it's always great to hear such passion. I love his ideas on how we can transform our working and recruiting practices to not only include neurodiverse people, but embrace and promote all the talents they have to offer. As a reminder, we have another podcast in this series out now, featuring a roundtable discussion with three parents of neurodiverse children. In it, we explore working practices for parents and our hopes for inclusive workplaces of the future, where people can truly reach their potential. Thank you for listening, and if you're interested in the work we do in diversity and retail and WIHTL, please go to our websites, wihtl.com and diversityinretail.com.